Panchanad is a Sanskrit word. So is Saptasindhu. Panjab, if you look at these three words, you can actually trace the history of different cultures that have been part of Punjab. Sanskrit culture, Prakrit culture, Persian and Arabic culture. These are the cultures that have formed the psyche, the, cult, the society and the mindset of Punjabis. So you can see all kinds of footprints on Punjabi psyche. So Nath Jogis have been there. They also have a very rich repertoire of poetry, but it seems to have been pushed away almost in the same manner in which Vedic past has been pushed away. Footprints of Ramayana have been pushed away. The very important mention of Mahabharata is not really made because we are trying to construct history of Punjabi society and culture in a particular way because it suits us and it fits into our ideological pattern. I feel privileged and honored both to be here. And I hope that uh, we'll have some meaningful interaction once the talk is over. It is not my view that Punjab has no antiquity. This is a kind of a view that has been propagated by a set of historians who claim to represent the history of Punjab, Punjabi society and culture. As a matter of fact, in my talk, I'm going to contest this particular view because I find that this gives us a segmented view of Punjabi society and culture, and therefore it is questionable. Before I get into my talk, let me give you an idea of Punjab. I think uh, in order to understand Punjabi society, history, culture, and literature, we need to know a little about Punjab. Not many people uh, are aware of the fact that Punjab, generally, we, uh, whenever anyone talks about Punjab, they begin their discussion uh, with Punjab. They, they kind of split the word Punjab into two and say it's a land of five rivers. I don't deny that. Of course, now it has ceased to be land of five rivers because five rivers don't flow through Punjab any longer. Because the kind of Punjab we are looking at is a truncated version of Punjab. But Punjab had a great history and a great culture, something that we seem to have erased from our minds for whatever reasons. And I think uh, in this case, the reasons are political and they're also ideological. But if you go back into the history, you discover that this particular region that we now call Punjab was essentially known as Sapta Sindhu. That means it was essentially a land of seven rivers. Now, my point is not to emphasize that, you know, first it was a land of seven rivers and now it's become a land of five rivers. My point is slightly different. 
the very fact that we have mention of Sapta Sindhu in the Vedic literature essentially tells us that Punjab actually has a history that goes back to the Vedic times. That is something very, very important. And I think we seem to forget this particular fact very conveniently. When I say we tend to forget, I'm essentially pointing towards some of the historians who have documented the history of Punjab. Now, this is also a land where, Patanj where Panani created his grammar. If you were to travel to Amritsar, there is a place called Ram Tirath. And it is believed that Ram Tirath is associated with Ram Chandraji because Balmiki had set up his ashram there. That is where Sita actually sought refuge. And that's where Love Kush were born. And that's where the battle between the father and the sons actually took place. The point I'm trying to make is that we don't necessarily have to go back to the Vedic times. We need to push the history back a little and we will discover that the footprints of Ramayana are also to be found on the soil of Punjab. Let's move a little closer. After Ramayana, let's talk of Mahabharat. Today, the moment we mention the word Kurukshetra, some people would say, oh, what are you talking about? Kurukshetra is not part of Punjab. But then, as I pointed out to you earlier, the kind of Punjab we are talking about right now, or the kind of Punjab we are conceptualizing right now, is a truncated version of what was originally known as the Saptasindhu or a Panchanad. That's another term which is found in Sanskrit, which of course predates Punjab, which shows some kind of an imprint of Persian language and even Arabic influence on formation of the term Punjab. Kurukshetra is a place which actually was located very much part of Punjab, and we know exactly what kind of association we have with Kurukshetra. That's where the great battle of Mahabharata happened. So the point I'm trying to make is the association that Punjab has is with Ramayana, with times of Mahabharat. It goes back to the Vedic times. And uh, let, let me move into history a little. We, I'm sure some of, you, some of us would remember a particular episode that we read of our own history when we were children in schools. Very often there was a chapter in which they talked about encounter between Porus and Sikandar, who was essentially a Greek king, Alexander. And it's a very, very interesting interchange that took place between Porus and Alexander. There was a long battle in which Porus finally was defeated. Porus actually was the king of this particular region. 
And when he was defeated and taken Alexander asked him a question. He said, how do you want me to treat you? And the answer that Porus gave is, was very, very significant because I think to my mind, it embodies the spirit of Punjabiyat as I see it. He said, I don't want you. I want you to treat me the way a king would treat another king. He did not say the way a king would treat a prisoner. That's very, very important. Even after being defeated, even in defeat, he continued to actually assert his own pride, self-pride. That is what I call the spirit of Punjabiyat, the undying spirit of Punjab. Even when you are down and out, you refuse to accept defeat and you continue to take pride in who you are. It's not The question is not whether he was a king at that point of time or not, but this is exactly the kind of inherent rebelliousness that we Punjabis have and sense of self-pride that we have that actually now when we talk about Punjabiyat, very often Sikh historians tend to associate this pride, this kind of an attitude of defiance and rebelliousness with the Sikh martyrs or with the Sikh gurus. The point I'm trying to make is that this Punjabiyat was always present in the land, in the soil, in the Vedic times, and even thereafter. So there is nothing new about it. Now, let me come to the real question that we are talking about. How did this whole problem start? Why did some set of historians feel the need to actually cut themselves off from ancient history? You know, it's very strange. Whenever you look through any history book, you find that whether it is Persia or it is any Mesopotamia or it is any other civilization, Inca, they always, or it's history of Europe or of America, they always talk of three different stages. Ancient period, medieval period, and modern period. These are the three stages that historians believe every society goes through. It's very strange and it's also equally intriguing that when you look at the history of Punjab today, I emphasize that phrase when you look at the history of Punjab today and that's the way in which history of Punjab has been constructed right from 19th century onwards. I think it would be odious on my part to actually mention names, but unless we mention names, I don't think we can get into the thick of debate. So therefore, it's very important that I mention, even though it might seem unpleasant, but we must mention a couple of names. One of the first persons who documented history of Punjab in 19th century was J.D. Kaningam. 
this history he started writing after Anglo-Sikh wars in which Maharaja Ranjit Singh was defeated and thereafter Punjab was annexed by the British. Let me also mention here that Punjab was one of the last outposts in India to fall to the British. That is very, very important that we continue to resist the British. We continue to resist the hegemony till the very end. And we were not the first, but we were the last to succumb to their designs. But J.D. Cunningham, when he started writing, he, for certain reasons, because we all know British had an agenda, and that agenda was divide and rule. They wanted to create what we like to call identity politics. So they wanted to actually create this kind of a schism in Punjabi culture. So they want, they actually, he started writing history of Punjab and he conflated it with the history of the Sikhs. That is exactly the kind of trend, the kind of trend which was started by the British that has continued even in post-independence India, which is very unfortunate, you know, because in post-independence India, we like to tell ourselves that we are now in what we call post-colonial phase. And post-colonial phase is all about questioning some of the assumptions, some of the ideological, ideological complications that were there in the construction of our history. But I think we have not actually questioned the colonial understanding of Punjabi society and culture. And people like J.S. Grewal, who are uh, very big historians, and I think when I mention, I run the risk of getting into trouble here. But he's also the one who has equated history of Punjab with the history of Sikhs. This is exactly how this trend has continued and it has not been challenged. I am not a historian by training. I am a student of Punjabi literature and culture. Whatever I understand about history, it is through literature and culture. So therefore, I would take you into Punjabi literature and culture and help you understand that how some of the historians who have emulated the British model have actually tried to falsify our history. They have ended up misinterpreting our history. I take you back to the word that I used, the phrase that I used in the beginning, Sapta Sindhu. Reflect on it a little. You use the other word, Panchanad. You even reflect on the word Punjab. Now, most of the people would say it means land of seven rivers, land of five rivers, land of whatever. My contention is we often miss out, and that's where I think literature helps us, we often miss out on the metaphorical significance of Saptasindhu or Panchanada or Punjab. 
along with the literal meaning that is often assigned to these terms, I think there is another meaning that these terms carry. And that is Punjab is a land of multiple cultures. We rarely ever see it as a land of multiple cultures and multiple languages. I would even go to the extent of saying, though some people may not agree with me there, that Punjab is mini India for me. If India is a multilingual and a multicultural society or culture, so is Punjab. And there are historical reasons for it, my dear friends. How over a period of time, Punjab actually absorbed, assimilated all kinds of cultures. That's where we'll be able to understand how Punjabi society has been shaped and formed over a period of time. Let me mention one very simple fact to you. Punjab, as we all understand, is like a sentry, is like a security guard outside your society. Punjab has been guarding your borders all along. We have faced invasions from outside. We have faced marauders from outside. We have faced all kinds of aggressions from outside. As a result, all the foreigners, before they entered into any other part of India, they first came to Punjab. That in itself will tell you why Punjabis are so liberal and open-minded. Because historically, we have always thrown our gates open to all kinds of foreigners. Sometimes we were forced to do it. And sometimes we did it willingly and we did it with open arms. Now, this kind of claim might seem tendentious to some, but I would try and corroborate it with some kind of historical references as well, which are to be found in Punjabi literature and culture. If I have to talk about one of the dominant forms of Punjabi literature, of course, Punjabi literature is very rich and all kinds of literary forms are to be found in Punjabi literature. One would have an extended discussion on that. But if I have to talk about the dominant strain, a dominant impulse in Punjabi literature, then it is that of Sufism. All of you understand what Sufism is. I don't think I need to explain that. I mentioned earlier, all kinds of invaders came. Why is it that Punjabi population did not embrace Islam in its militant form, despite the fact that most of the Mughals, they came through Punjab? It is only because by bef much before they could start invading us, we had already started embracing philosophy of Islam in its more moderate, liberal, 
and open form, and that is Sufism. Sufism is non-clerical. Sufism is liberal form. Some people, when they look into the history of Sufism, they say that Sufism is one kind of philosophy which has had some kind of interaction with Greeks. It has influence of Neoplatonism. Some people say it has also had interaction with Vedantic thought. And some people say <clears throat> it is the liberal side of Islam. I'm not getting into this question of how you would like to view Sufism, but I would simply like to emphasize this fact that Sufism represents a kind of a confluence of different traditions. And I mentioned a little earlier that our land is a land of multiple cultures. One small thing as we, before we go further, Panchanad is a Sanskrit word. So is Saptasindhu. Punjab, if you look at these three words, you can actually trace the history of different cultures that have been part of Punjab. Sanskrit culture, Prakrit culture, Persian and Arabic culture. These are the cultures that have formed the psyche, the, cult, the society and the mindset of Punjabis. So you can see all kinds of footprints on Punjabi psyche. And these are some of the footprints that I've tried to mention. Now, let me go back to uh, 12th century. In 12th century, when we look through the history of Punjabi literature, we come across one name, uh, which is very popular, that of Baba Farid. Baba Farid is generally acclaimed as one of the early practitioners of Punjabi poetry. If you are tracing the beginnings of Punjabi literature or poetry, we trace the beginnings back to Baba Farid. But very often when we are doing that, and this is a kind of a view which has been promoted, and I, I'm with this view. I'm not opposing it. Because Baba Farid, for me, is someone who embodies what I like to call syncretic culture, culture of fusion. Baba Farid is not into identity politics. Baba Farid is not trying to build barriers. He's not trying to create walls. And that in itself will tell you, because he followed a certain kind of philosophy, that's why his ideas, his ideology, his philosophy found such an easy route straight to the hearts of the people. They embraced it. They owned him up as one of their own. But before that, generally when we are trying to look at this history, and Baba Farid starts somewhere in 12th century. But does it mean that we had no poetry before that? We did have. But that was available to us, not so much in Punjabi, but Apabhransha or Prakrit and Apabhransha combination. And the poetry that I'm referring to is the poetry of the Nath Jogis. That poetry seems to have been forgotten. 
that poetry seems to have been pushed out in a way because some people are busy constructing their history in a certain way. They want to give some kind of an edge to the historical perspective. They want to bend it for their own purposes. You know, the way it has happened in case of Indian history too, each ruling elite, each ruling establishment tries to impose its own construct, constructs of history upon us. I remember my daughter telling me that when she studied in class 10th, she did not read much about history of other cultures. She only focused on historical monuments because BJP was in power. So they gave a certain kind of an edge to Indian history. And that's exactly what Congress has done. They have also shown some kind of preponderance towards the leftist or the Marxist view of history. So this kind of debate has been going on. The point I'm trying to make is a much larger point. History is too serious a subject to be handed over to the politicians. They will end up making a mincemeat of it. And I think it's the duty of intellectuals, our thinkers, our philosophers, our academicians to actually reclaim history from the politicians and understand it in the way in which it ought to be understood. Our commitment should not be to any political ideology. Our commitment should be to the subject of history. Anyway, that was more of a digression I got into. We move further. So Nath Jogis have been there. They also have a very rich repertoire of poetry, but it seems to have been pushed away almost in the same manner in which Vedic past has been pushed away. Footprints of Ramayana have been pushed away. The very important mention of Mahabharata is not really made because we are trying to construct history of Punjabi society and culture in a particular way because it suits us and it fits into our ideological pattern. Coming back to Baba Farid. Baba Farid represents to me, as I said earlier, some kind of syncretic culture where he's writing in a Multani dialect. And that Multani dialect today is recognized as one of the earliest forms of dialect in Punjabi. So if you ask me, his language is Punjabi. His philosophy is an amalgamation of Vedic philosophy and the best that is available in Islam. It has been my contention for a long time that when you remove all the excrescence from religion, and what I call excrescence is the organizational structure. And if you start looking at the essence of every religion, you will find every religion speaks the same language. And that language is of universal love. It's the same thing that we may have different kind of an appearance, 
and we may try and exaggerate it, exaggerate those ap- appearances or those facial features. You may look different from the way I do. I may wear a different kind of a dress, but all this does not take away from the fact that these differences exist at a very superficial level, deep down. We are all human and we have the same, we are the creation of the same God. If we believe that, then I think our entire perspective of humanity, of man changes and we begin to think the way we ought to think. Probably that's the kind of uh, kind of viewpoint I'm trying to propagate here. Anyway, let's move further into history. Now, uh, for good 200 years after Baba Farid, uh, generally when you look through history, people tell you nothing much was written. But if you probe deeper, you discover particular kind of poetry was popular in that particular period from 12th century to 15th century. There is a phase of 300 years where literary forms have not really been documented. They are lying scattered through history. But there are different forms that were available in that period. I'm trying to draw attention your attention towards heroic poetry, which in Punjabi is called Vara. So we had a tradition of Vara, which means heroic poetry. Poetry which actually represented collective life, life of the community, which actually gave an occasion. Let us remember from 12th century to 15th century, we did not make much of creative or literary progress because we were constantly under an assault. We were under an attack. And we were too weak to resist those assaults. But then in 15th century came a voice, which became a very strident voice, which became a very articulate voice, and which became a voice of Punjabiyat all over again after Baba Farid. I am talking of Guru Nanak Dev Ji. Very often we think of Guru Nanak Dev Ji as someone who is one of the first gurus of the Sikhs. I'm not denying that. He was certainly the first guru of the Sikhs. But he did not, let us remember, lay down the foundation of the Khalsa. That is something which was done by Guru Gobind Singh Ji much later. The point I'm trying to make here is, we often think of Guru Nanak Dev Ji as a mystic poet. He was a mystic poet. I don't deny that. He did his own spiritual practice. But the point I wish to emphasize here is, his spiritual practices were very eclectic in nature. And to my mind, there has not been a more secular guru of the Sikhs ever. He was the most secular of all the Sikh gurus because he had dialogue with Nath Jogis. He had dialogue with some of the Islamic fundamentalists. He had dialogue 
with saints and he had dialogue with poets across the land we all know guru nanak dev ji traveled very extensively he was a kind of a peripatetic philosopher who continued to travel and there is a book also that has come out which actually traces the journey of nanak through different parts of india and even south asia so to my mind guru nanak dev ji is not to be seen only as a sikh guru he was a man whose philosophy was more eclectic in nature because he tried to imbibe the best of islam of hinduism of vedanta and who also created something of his own i would like to think of him as a radical thinker not someone who was simply trying to imbibe influences people who only imbibe influences don't become great they can be good followers but they cannot be good leaders and guru nanak dev ji certainly was a great leader not just a good leader and his strength lay in eclecticism another little observation about guru nanak dev ji and that is something which i am going to say about guru granth sahib also something which our sikh brothers sometimes choose to forget for a certain reasons guru nanak dev ji wrote mystic poetry but his poetry was also steeped in his own times it was located in his own times when babar attacks punjab guru nanak dev ji is the first one to raise his voice against babar pap di barat le kabulon aaya taaya oh guru nanak dev ji pehle gal us di karde ne that he is come with his sinful barat sinful barat is his army that he is come with these nefarious designs actually to overpower us and to defeat us so the point i'm trying to make is that he was a secular poet and he was also a non conformist we have a very strong tradition of non conformism in punjabi literature one of the things that is often said about punjabis is ek kise di mande nahi kise nu syande nahi they think they are an authority unto themselves there are historical reasons for it we have been non conformists because we were always in opposition to every conceivable form of authority we became non hegemonic only because we have been opposing other people all along historically we had to fight them we had to oppose them and we had to some sometimes even uh, register a protest against them so this non conformism this self pride and this glory in oneself this inherent rebelliousness these are some of the features of punjabi culture and history from guru nanak dev ji the point i wish to emphasize before i move on is whether you're talking of baba farid or you're talking of the bani of the gurus or you're talking of guru granth sahib the same spirit of dialogue 
among different religions continues to manifest itself through our literary and cultural tradition. Now, uh, I, I was uh, going to share some observations about Guru Granth Sahib. Look at the structure of Guru Granth Sahib. Guru Granth Sahib is not only accommodated the Bani of the Gurus. Therefore, you know, it is wrong to say that this is the cultural legacy of the Sikhs. It has Bani of Kabir in it. It has Bani of Baba Farid in it. It has Bani of Namdev in it. All kinds of saints, poets, and minstrels, they find their voice in Shri Guru Granth Sahib Ji. What does it really mean? I think in Indian context, if we have to trace the history of secularism, and this I say with a degree of responsibility, we don't have to go far. We can trace the beginnings of secularism in Shri Guru Granth Sahib. Because there is no other scripture which is as secular. Darbar Sahib has four doors. That means it opens itself up in four directions and to all varanas. I'm not talking of the kind of situation we have today where people have started building, constructing gurudwaras for Ram Gadiyas, separately for Ravidasiyas and then for other communities. Today we have divided Sikhism along communitarian lines. But that is a deviance. That is a departure from the way in which our gurus essentially taught us. That is a departure, very malicious departure from the way in which our gurus essentially conceive this idea of egalitarianism. I think if you have to learn something about egalitarianism, you should go back to Shri Guru Granth Sahib. You should go back to that history. And that's where you'll find some kind of confluence of all languages, all cultures, entire humanity. There is nothing exclusive about it. There is no idea of separatism that is built into Guru Granth Sahib. Therefore, why should it be handed over to a particular community? Why shouldn't all Punjabis own it up and internalize the very spirit? Anyway, this is a question I leave you with before I move on to something else. We come down to 18th century. 18th century is one of the toughest centuries in the history of Punjab. Punjab is in a state of political fragmentation. And communities are also separated. You know, this is the time when Aurangzeb was there. And because of the certain kind of policies he followed, he had managed to create some kind of divide among Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs. I just need to refer to you to what happened to Guru Tegh Bahadurji and 
the manner in which he was beheaded uh, at Delhi. That is exactly what was happening in Punjab around that time, 17th and 18th century, essentially I'm talking about. But when this entire society was divided, we have a voice rising here in the society, and that is of Varis Shah. Varis Shah is almost an iconic figure in Punjabi society and culture. And it's very important that we understand the importance of Varis Shah and his great creation, Heer. It is known as Varis Heer. Varis was certainly not the first one to have written on the subject. So many people before him had also dealt with the same theme. But where does Varis Shah's importance lie? And why is it that today when we talk of Heer Ranja, Kista of Heer Ranja, we always talk of Varis Shah? Because Varis Shah, according to me, was also Varis of this syncretic tradition, this fusion of cultures that starts with Baba Farid, comes down to Guru Nanak Dev Ji, runs through the whole gamut of Bani that is enshrined in the poetry of different Gurus and finally finds confluence in Guru Granth Sahib. The same kind of fusion of cultures is to be found in Varis Shah's Heer. Very often, people make this mistake that Varis Shah was a Muslim and therefore Heer Ranja is a Kissa that belongs to Islam. It might come as a surprise to some of you that in Varis Shah's Heer, there is mention of Ranja's genealogy as well. And when Varis looks into Ranja's genealogy, he points out some kind of a historical fact, which is very important for us to understand. And that historical fact is that Ranja, according to Varis Shah, was a descendant of Rajputs. Imagine Varis Shah, a Muslim writer, writing about the Ranja. He could have easily erased the Hindu past of Ranja, but he didn't do that because he was an honest writer. And he, beyond that, he believed in this whole notion of eclecticism. He believed in the philosophy of syncretism. He believed in the idea of fusion of cultures. He believed he respected this multiplicity. Therefore, he says he, his ancestors were Rajputs who came from Rajasthan. At some point of time, because of Islamic influence, Ranja's ancestors became converted and became Muslims. Now tell me, in today's times, would any creative writer, if he belongs to a particular religion, would he ever dare to take this kind of a risk? He wouldn't do that. He would deliberately erase the past in order to present history in a certain way. But Punjabi tradition is such, we are outspoken. We like to call 
a spade a spade. We in fact call a spade a shovel, if you ask me. You know, we go uh, uh, a little too far in being outspoken. And sometimes we are criticized precisely for that reason. Now in the contemporary times, you know, we let's come down to 19th century. In 19th century, we have a writer called, uh, one who is acknowledged as one of the first, one of the first novelists in Punjabi. Now see how sectarianism comes into Punjabi literature. 19th century, I've already mentioned, was a century when Punjabis were at their lowest. Defeated by the British, Dilip Singh had been sent off to England. Rani Jinda had been taken prisoner. Sikh morale was at its lowest. To some extent, in uh, Jang Nama, written by Shah Muhammad, this whole spirit has been captured to a large extent. And there you have J.D. Cunningham writing history of Punjab, conflating it with the history of the Sikhs. Because he was creating his own. It's not that he wanted to actually acknowledge the fact that they were a martial race. He simply wanted to propagate a philosophy. Hindus and Sikhs have nothing in common with each other. Whereas the fact is, if you look through the history, we had Roti Beti Ka Rishta. We were almost woven into the same fabric. I think if I have to talk about some kind of metaphorical, if I have to talk of Punjabi culture in a metaphorical way, I would like to draw your attention to uh, a particular form which is very popular in Punjab. Some people associate Punjabi culture only with that form. That is Pulkari. Pulkari has a beautiful design. Multiple colors intricately woven into each other. That is representative of Punjabi spirit and Punjabi culture. Pulkari is what embodies Punjabi society and culture. Can you separate those colors and still say it's a beautiful, intricate design? Certainly not. But anyway, this is the time when Sikh, Sikh pride was at its lowest. Now, on the other hand, identity politics had begun. You know, identity politics began in a very strange way, started through the efforts of the British. But then when they went in for, uh, when they went in for a census in 1881, for the first time, Hindus and Sikhs were recorded in government registers as two separate communities. We never had that sense. Earlier times, Hindus took pride in the fact if their eldest son embraced Sikhism. But now the British conducted the census in such a way that they separated these two communities, which were the dominant communities in Punjab. It was carried further through movements like Arya Samaj, which happened in Punjab, and also Singh Sabha movement. Anyway, I will not go into the intricacies of history, just restrict myself to Paivir Singh. Paivir Singh 
if we have to understand Paivir Singh and we have to understand why he deviated from the syncretic culture, why he did not talk about the culture of fusion, it is only because he was under the influence of Singh Sabha movement. It was almost imperative for Sikhs to assert their own identity. That's when identity politics began. And that is reflected to a large extent in the kind of novels he's written. He's talking in terms of Sikh pride. He is not giving much space to Hindus. Even if they have been given space, they've been marginalized in his novels. This segregation between Hindus and Sikhs actually began with Paivir Singh. But then, Nanak Singh, who comes later, he again goes back to, it's, it's very interesting if you look into it. Paivir Singh was a very well-educated Sikh. And he was brought up in a culture where influence of Western liberalism was very strong. And it's interesting when he wrote his first novel, he actually chose a form called historical romance. And that particular form had become outdated in the West. Walter Scott was no longer popular towards the end of 19th century. But a Punjabi, when he decides to write his first novel, he picks up historical romance as a form which, but influence of Walter Scott is evident there. So he's embracing Western liberal ideology and under that influence, talking about segregation, separation, two different communities, marginalizing Hindus, giving more space to Sikhs, trying to conflate Sikh pride, so on and so forth. Nanak Singh comparatively was less educated. He had not even gone beyond class nine. He was born into a Hindu family. He became a Sikh much later. And he is the one, I like to believe, who actually, though of course people uh, talk about Paivir Singh more referentially, but I would like to believe it was Nanak Singh who went back to pre-colonial forms of Indian narratives. And he brought them back into novel writing. Imagine an illiterate man, comparatively illiterate man, not much educated, simpleton by heart, but is trying to connect back with tradition. The point I'm trying to make is, there are only two ways of looking at tradition. Either you connect with your own past or you disconnect yourself from the past and you fall into the trap that the Western liberal thought has set for us. Then you embrace Western liberalism. I don't think we need Western liberalism. We have been very, very liberal throughout. Had we not been liberal, all kinds of people would not have made Punjab their home and all kinds of people would not have made India their home. So Nanak Singh brings back that tradition. And look at Punjabi poetry, the same Sufi tradition that travels almost right through it 
comes is available to us in the contemporary times in the works of Shiv Batalvi and today Surjit Patra. The same Sufi strain is there. That means the dominant tradition is non-hegemonic and the dominant tradition is multicultural. Despite this, if we continue to shut our eyes to it, if we continue to shut our eyes to history, and if we choose to, as I like to say, just chop off our head to spite our body, to cut ourselves off from antiquity almost amounts to chopping our own head, not just cutting your nose, as the English people say, but chopping your head to spite your body. What would the body be if you are already beheaded? So let us not disconnect ourselves from the past, from the Vedic past or the pre-Vedic past. Let us try and connect with it. That will not make us as poor as we seem today. That is where our spiritual richness lies. That is where our spiritual uh, cartography lies. If we have to discover that, then we have no choice but to connect. And our entire tradition is pointing in that direction. Right from Baba Farid to Surjit Pata, Varis Shah, Nanak Singh, Gurdyal Singh, I did not really talk about it. Imagine a person like Gurdyal Singh writing a novel like Parsa. And Parsa is actually connecting it back to Parsaram. Why should he be talking about Indian context or an Indian legend? Why can't he restrict himself precisely because he also believed in the true philosophy of Farid, Nanak, Shri Guru Granth Sahib, which is essentially eclectic in nature, which emphasizes openness, which says you have to embrace everyone as your own. But then the downside is when you're doing it, sometimes you forget who you are. When you embrace too many cultures, you sometimes forget who you are. Maybe that's the spirit behind these Sikh historians who are trying to find some kind of a foothold. I'm not trying to justify their efforts, but I think we need to understand even those who disagree with us. Thank you so much. We are talking about the identity. I am a Punjabi Brahmin and a, uh, a majority of people I meet outside Punjab don't know. They ask me that you're a Brahmin, a Sharma, but you're a Punjabi, no? So the identity, the Punjabi Hindus don't exist as such probably because uh, the moment you say you're from Punjab, they assume you're a Sikh. Yeah. Similarly, I met somebody who was a Husseini Brahmin from Northwestern Frontier Province. Yeah. yeah. So I would like you to speak about this. I, <clears throat> towards the end of uh, uh, my discussion, very briefly, I mentioned Aparna uh, Gurdayal Singh. Maybe we can use Gurdayal Singh to answer your question. And I think uh, even in my presentation, I hinted towards it, though I did not elaborate on it because such was the nature of presentation. It did not per permit too much of elaboration. You know, the fact is when we talk of Varish Shah or we talk of his character Ranja, 
and we talk about his mixed genealogy, what we are trying to emphasize is that in Punjab, identities were always mixed up. You know, you can't separate a Hindu from a Sikh, you can't separate a Sikh from a Muslim, or you can't separate a Hindu from a Muslim, because we have, because of a long historical contact, we are almost woven into each other like Pulkari. So when you talk about a Punjabi Brahmin, I can understand, you know, we outside Punjab, people have stereotypes. People understand through us through those stereotypes. The moment you say you're from Punjab, they presume that you're a Sikh. Even in my case, because when I speak on Punjabi language, literature, culture, they say, oh, you must be a cut sir. I have to painstakingly explain to them that I'm a Kshatriya, but I'm a Punjabi. We've been living in these parts for a very long time. And there are Hindus as well who live here. When you talk of, let's say, Brahmins who come from a certain parts of what is now known as Pakistan, basically we are again talking about this question of mixed identities. You know, there are, let, let me tell you again, there are Sindhus among Sikhs, there are Sindhus among Muslims, there are Sandhus among Sikhs, there are Sandhus among Muslims, there are Grewals among Muslims, there are Ranas among Muslims. So the idea is, where do you draw the line? Such has been our past. We have had intermarriages, we've had cultural contact, we have been together at ground level, my dear friend, there is no separation. People love each other. If you have a Muslim neighbor, a neighbor, sorry, I'm sure you would like to sit with her, sup with her, and you will have no problems. But the problem begins, when does it begin? When someone tells you that Muslims have historically assaulted you and assaulted our women, so you should not sup with them. Now, your neighbor doesn't create any problem, but some ideology somewhere creates problem. But there again, we use history in a very selective manner. We talk of marauders, we talk of invaders, but we don't talk of Baba Farid. We don't talk of Guru Nanak. We don't talk of Varish Shah. We don't talk of Gurudyal Singh or Nanak Singh. They are the people who actually are the cultural messengers and the cultural ambassadors. They are the ones who truly represent our culture. We need to look at our history or ourselves through their prism, not through a politician's prism, not through a prism of some historian who has a jaundiced eye or who looks at history through a jaundiced eye. You get my point? Now, in, uh, because you talked about Brahmins to begin with, I'll give you a very interesting uh, uh, take from uh, Gurdyal Singh's Parsa. You know, Parsa, as I pointed out to you, connects back to Parshara. He's using that mythology. And what he's trying to say is, in a way, it's very interesting because he's going back to the distant past. And he says, if you have to understand Sikh psyche, go back to Parsharam and you'll know what he did. And you will know. He declared war against all Kshatriyas. 
he was a brahmin in this parsaram or parsa is also brahmin by caste but gurdyal singh is raising a very interesting point he says how do you describe the caste of a person who is a brahmin but has no scholarship because parsa has not been to school he's not even been educated and who has worked all his life on the land who has been in the vocation of a jat so you have a jat brahmin can you deny that that is the reality so i am a kshatriya by caste maybe but i am a brahmin by profession you may be a brahmin by caste and you might be engaged in doing a uh, work in the multinational and you may be earning money you may be a baniya then so the intermixing of caste has taken place historically we are in a state of denial we don't want to look at it that way because it suits us not to look at it that way that's the only way we can create schism and misunderstandings among people we need to resist that politics we need to resist that ideology Uh, namaste rana ji uh, thank uh, you for taking me back to punjab and like aparna said i am a punjabi baniya and i'm also asked this question time and again oh but you are not a sardar um so i answered it in my own way but uh, for your um, uh, talk i want to add a couple of things that i know of not as much as you but you said punjab you know punjab comes from persian but you know the word ab comes from apah which is a sanskrit word for water so it's essentially going back to sanskrit roots saying panch apaha which becomes punjab so it's not really persia it may have come back via persia so apaha remains a pretty much a sanskrit origin word uh, which i very lately discovered uh, all through my schooling and growing up i was also saying punjab uh, second you mentioned uh, about one um, a particular author i'm forgetting the name who mentioned the sorry varisha the one who yeah, mentioned varisha. the age of ranja in hir ranja let me tell you i now live in goa and i'm uh, of course reading a lot about goa and this is also a place which which have been converted you know all the christians uh, here were essentially hindus and hindu brahmins mostly and they all know their lineage brahmins and kshatriyas and i'll quote one example i read the memoirs of the fashion designer wendell rodricks and the first thing that he mentions is that uh, his lineage and he says i am a rajput from uh, or kshatriya from such and such village my yeah. such and such a generation converted and now i am a christian of course because somebody in my lineage decided to convert so right. um, and this is something i have mentioned in my book lotus and the stone as well that you know we all carry the traces of our lineage our genealogy irrespective of our changing our religion and changing our religion i really like the word uh, used by somebody um, i heard a couple of weeks back is that aapki upasna vidhi badal gayi hai aapki genes nahi badli hai you know your genes and your dna oh, has changed yeah beautiful view of things you may have changed the way you worship worship yeah and those genes will come out at some point in time and you will reconnect with them uh 
So, uh, and the third thing that I want to ask you, and the reason I, 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 I joined this conversation was that I am, what I'm really looking for is that um, what you spoke about today is also pretty much medieval ages, not really the ancient past. You mentioned Ram Tirth in uh, Amritsar. Uh, but if we really look at it today, the physical landscape of Punjab, whatever Punjab that is left, including Punjab and Haryana, and yeah. maybe a bit of bit parts of Himachal, we the the ancient culture does not exist at all. You know, Punjab was a kshetra uh, which had lot of ancient Devi temples. I know there is one at Jalandhar, there is one at Kurukshetra, there is one in Jind. Uh, Himachal, of course, has preserved some of them. Um, and there is nobody who's researching them. There is nobody who's documenting them, which means we we are almost on the verge of losing them. Uh, there is uh, there's no attempt. I I recently got an article by a guest author who wrote about the temples in Sangrur, you know. And I was uh, I was I, I've lived there uh, as a kid, and I was stunned to realize there is a Raj Rajeshwari temple there. And um, and lot of such things, you know. So, is there somebody? So my question essentially is: Do you know of anybody who's documenting the ancient past of Punjab? Uh, I think before I respond to that, I would just uh, make one little observation uh, to kind of uh, reinforce whatever you have said. You know, the very fact that, as I mentioned, there are footprints on the soil and footprints of all kinds. So in the same manner, there are footprints on our genes as well. So all identities are mixed up, as you rightly pointed out, citing the case of uh, 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 that famous uh, fashion designer. I forget his name. So this is Indian reality. We today are trying to segregate communities, separating them, creating walls. But the real Indic reality, as someone pointed out, I like the phrase Indic reality, is that it's all mixed up and you cannot segregate us. Because once you look through the prism of history, you'll find that somewhere, you know, my great grandmother's niece may have married your great grandfather's nephew. So that's the kind of situation we are looking at. But then divisions we create because we have our own compulsions. I will not really go into that question. Uh, You mentioned some of the temples that have been found. I would mention Anuradhaji, uh, very close to Chandigarh, there is a place called Sanghol. And it is in ruins, actually. But I visited that place and I saw for myself, there is beautiful Buddhist monastery, which lies underground but unfortunately you know it's in a state of gross neglect people are not looking at it they they are not even willing to maintain it now the point i made at some point is you know in punjab what has happened is because so many cultures came i mean i mentioned vedic past because i didn't have much time to elaborate on that you can talk about jaina past you can talk about buddhist past you can talk about christian past of punjab just as you talk about Islamic past and the Hindu past and the Sikh past. So the the point is because we were open to all kinds of influences. As a result, we've reached a stage of saturation and we feel as if we have no cultural identity of our own. 
you know, almost in a state of cultural vacuum, let me put it that way. Now, that is the reason why, you know, popular saying is that the only form of culture in Punjab is agriculture, which is, of course, not a fact because Punjab has a very rich cultural tradition. But uh, the reason is there has been a gross neglect towards the past and general neglect of the culture. Uh, another thing that I would like to underline as we go along is uh, there is a very popular phrase in Punjabi which says, Khada pita laeda, baki sara ahmad shayeda, which is a way of saying, it's an old saying which has historical basis, which says, Ke jo kuch aapne consume kar liya, wahi aapka hai, baki to aapke invaders lay jayenge in form of taxes. So the idea is that you have to have that kind of a hedonistic Epicurean philosophy, you know, because aaj hai kal nahi hai. So, that is how they moved away from their cultural past. And I think that is reflected in a way when we try and kind of safely hide antiquity or ancient period and say, okay, fine, we go as far as our memory serves us. We go back to the medieval period. Uh, I did not start that. I basically started with the ancient period, but because I wanted to establish another thesis, and that was that we have a syncretic tradition. So I wanted to look through that syncretic tradition. That's why I was not able to give much space to antiquity and ancient past. But I'm sure it makes for a much more extended discussion. We, today we are seeing that we have a, a disconnecting from our culture, our history, our practices. So is there example of any such thing in history? And can you please tell us that how uh, the civilization have reconnected or it have thus just discontinued? Um, uh, well, I think, uh, uh, Devyansh, this has been the main thrust of what I was speaking about. You know, uh, when I talk about Baba Farid and I talk about uh, uh, interaction between moderate Islam and Vedantic thought, or I talk about interaction between uh, Sufi thought and Neoplatonism, I am essentially talking about the way in which different cultures have had a very living dialogue with each other. You know, something which is missing today. And when I talk of Guru Nanak Dev Ji, again, I'm emphasizing the same point. When I spoke of Varis Shah, I was deliberately trying to, I did not talk of it as a um, a tragic kissa or a love story of he Ranja, I drew your attention to Ranja's past, the manner in which Varisha talks about it, where he's more interested in looking into his genealogy and is pointing out this fact that, look, I am a Muslim, I'm writing about him, but let me give you authentic idea of his past. So you have a more authentic history available in cultural resources than you have in the actual historical documents. That was the point I was trying to make. Nanak Singh, he goes back to the pre-colonial narrative practices. Pre-colonial narrative practices emphasized oral tradition. You, When you read Nanak Singh's novel, my dear friend, you get a sense that you're not reading a text. You are listening to a story being recited. Just as your grandmother 
used to sit when you were a little child and she would recite a story to you at night in the same manner you have the narrator telling your story inside the novel now that's something very very modern but that is pre modern because you're going back to the oral tradition so there are examples of all kinds that one can look through where we actually people are talking about the manner in which you can connect with your past tell me one thing your name is divyanshu is that sufficient to introduce you someone will also ask you who are your parents we need complete introduction now fine you can say that i don't get along with parents but can you deny that they were not they are not my parents denying your past amounts to denying your ancestry or your parentage or your genealogy that is exactly so what i'm saying is somewhere your identity is linked to your past the moment you deny some part of that past you denying yourself richness of your own identity please don't do that uh so the first thing i i would like to ask you is that uh, you see the syncretic culture that you talk about uh, i mean uh, how much has it served punjabis because you know during partition obviously you know that was when the syncretic culture was most needed and obviously that didn't happen then after partition uh, again the syncretic culture was needed but that didn't happen during the 80s it had to be put down by a you know police action calm government action and things like that so uh, i don't really understand the value of uh, that syncretic culture i mean as a living culture and a living movement within the punjabi society and secondly uh, i mean i say this with utmost care because i am not a punjabi i i can't feel punjabi anyway so the other part is that i never thought i would do this but i am uh, forced to defend the british historian on sangam talks because john davy cunningham might have written something yes but we have been independent at least the indian half of punjab has been having free speech and has been fairly independent but why is it that the narrative has actually uh, uh, from a seedling it has become a tree you know the narrative uh, the seedling that they sowed has become a tree and there are no british around to you know uh, prod you and give you incentives to do that so can you please explain these two things before going on to other things sure um, sir you. if i could add on my question to that he's talking about the british how the british wrote history i am talking about how the british set our curriculum how come we are still researching shakespeare and feminism studies and not other writers in english uh, brown writers and i mean indian writers in english Uh, thank you dr ramakrishnan for asking two very penetrating questions and making very penetrating observations but i i think it's very interesting to me when i was listening to you that in your second question you have in fact answered your first question your first question was that why is it that uh, despite the fact that we have a syncretic tradition in punjabi culture why is it that it fails us every time uh we need it the most whether we are talking of 1947 or we are talking of 1980s or even before that we are talking of naxalite movement so on and so forth on one hand we are actually claiming that we have a synthetic tradition but it doesn't you know 
thought and action, I think uh, Dr. Ramakrishnan never go together. Living practices actually never follow the thought. I mean, Sikhism preached egalitarianism. Sikhism was uh, the first secular philosophy that I come across. But how many of the Sikhs are secular is a question now on the ground level. Uh, how many of Hindus actually believe in the Vedantic philosophy? You know, when you start raising those questions about living practices, living practices always run aground as far as I'm concerned. But that doesn't really mean that the importance of thought is not there. I mean, I think for us thinkers, it's very important that we actually privilege thought which is not for segregation, which is not for separatism, but which actually brings people together, binds them together. That's, uh, uh, that's one way of looking at it. Coming to the specifics of history writing, <clears throat> let me tell you, yes, as I mentioned, and you also corroborated, Cunningham wrote history of Punjab in a certain way. There was an ideology behind it. He had an agenda. Fine. But I also mentioned very briefly that separation of communities in Punjab did not start, sir, in 1947. Separation, historically speaking, had started somewhere in 19th century towards, let's say, 1850s or 60s. That's the time when Arya Samaj movement, which was a reform movement among Hindus, started in Punjab and elsewhere in India as well. And at the same time, we have another concurrent movement running in Punjab, that is Singh Sabha movement. Now, if you look at these two movements, you understand, if you look at the ideology behind these two movements, I think one thing will be very clear to you, that the separation is already taking place. Whatever British wanted is actually happening on the ground. Hindus are following their own uh, social reforms and Sikhs are trying to actually introduce their own set of reforms. They're already beginning to think of each other as separate from each other, which was not really a historical fact. This is exactly what I was trying to discount. When you look through history, you find there is no segregation of this kind. Segregation has been imposed from above. We have accepted it as faith comply. And we are trying to introduce it into living practices. Ultimately, when divisions become more pronounced, I think it makes sense to talk of some kind of a unifying philosophy that is syncretism, that is cultural fusion, that is Sufism for me. I believe in that. Fault me. When we talk about our historians, I think while we take pride in what they have said, we also need to critically analyze uh, that so when we talk about Porus and Alexander War, I don't think the outcome is what is portrayed. I think we need to take pride in the fact that uh, uh, you know a king from the Indic lands uh, made the uh, you know if you want to call him a world warrior uh, retreat. Uh, so that was more of a comment. I have this question, uh, and it's derived from one of the um, beautiful statement that you said when you said Punjab did not accept Islam in its militant form. Completely agree with that. But do you think it is because uh, back then, back then, even now, Punjab uh, is connected to the roots and adhyatma. But then at the same time, when a warrior class is uprooted, 
they are like a loose cannon example is we know that punjab did not make islam but once they were there they now today they are the one who are ruling even pashtuns who are supposed to be the warrior class is actually uh, is is um, under the thumbs of uh, punjab and the other part is khalistan now if that is the thing what do you think is the way forward for the society to so that the society understands that the warrior uh, you know segment needs some pride and how to keep that in check so that they can assimilate i hope i'm able to frame my questions question properly uh, yes i think uh, you've done it uh, very well exceedingly well and i've understood the thrust of your argument as well the question uh, which is to my mind somewhat similar to what dr ramakrishnan was uh, pointing at or hinting at you know we are talking of uh, idea at two levels that is one is the level of thought and the other is the level of living practice why is it that uh, you know thought is good but when it comes down to living practices um uh, it doesn't actually either translate itself or it doesn't work you know we are also concerned about uh its unworkability so to say at the ground level all that is there but then you know when uh, i would go back to it when the 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 sense that history gives us is to my mind number one why why is it that we turn to history why, where does the importance of history essentially lie or when is it that we need to turn to history i think we need to turn to history the most when we are facing some kind of crisis in the present now if things have gone wrong in 47 things have gone wrong in 84 things are still going wrong we are going separate ways hindus and sikhs identity politics which is not our creation as i pointed out to you earlier also in the, in course of presentation you know hindus and sikhs have no problem at the ground level they are good neighbors and they love each other but the problem is when someone politician gets up and gives a speech and he says that you have to worry about your sikh identity and some hindu guru comes and he says no 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 you have to worry about hindu identity and punjab has a past which you are refusing to look at or a sikh says that no 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 our past begins in the medieval age so we have nothing to do with you so on and so forth or when they try and destroy that fine fabric which actually is woven on the basis of this everydayness that we have so everydayness does not really create any problem but the problem is created at the hegemonic level at the dominant level at the level of the ruling establishment if you allow me to say that they are the ones who create trouble but then the problem begins when our scholars also begin to fit into the design of the ruling establishment when i do not maintain my independent view and i begin to think the way ruling establishment wants me to think and when do i do that i do that when i want my personal gains you see that it's very simple game independent thinker is the one who is actually giving clear picture to the politician look who's showing up a mirror but another kind of thinker is the one who is towing the line what kind of thinkers do we have in a country today people who are more than willing to toe the line more than not many people have the courage to actually stand 
and speak truth to power. Do we have people who can speak truth to power? No. That's why history is being torn to shreds. That's why our living practices are in total confusion. And that's why people don't know which way to go. That's the problem. Somewhere, I think we, the thinkers, have failed our own people, not politicians. I don't ever point fingers at anyone else. I am the kind of person who would like to believe that we have to look within and see where we have gone wrong. And we've gone terribly wrong somewhere down the line. Sir, you mentioned that uh, in essence, all the religions... Uh, so, like, again, the question is similar to an argument against your syncretic culture. Sure. Uh, when you say that all religions, in essence, say the same thing, mean the same thing, I agree. Whoever realized, realized that it is him, it is the self. So, when a sage said, Aham um, Brahmasmi, we wrote it down in a Ved or in a... And, and made a, a, you know, made a philosophy out of it. When uh, a Ramana says that I am that, or Nisargadat says, we call him Maharishi. When Al-Halaj says Anal-Haq, that means I am the truth, they crucify him. So in essence, it may be the same, but its uh, results are quite different in different religions. Yeah, that's right. It all depends on how much tolerance a particular religion has towards dissent. And that always differs. You know, even in, when we talk of religion, let's make distinction between people who practice religion and people who are part of the organization of religion. And it's the organization where the problem lies, not with the practice. You know, it's the organization which says, this man has to be crucified. Communal rights of politicians Unless I'm told that I'm separate from such and such person, I'm no problem. Who is my enemy? I'm my worst enemy. Kaun enemy hai mera? I'm my best friend and I'm my worst enemy. Koi itni dikkat nahi hoti hai. Lekin, enemy ka jo aapke mein dal diya jata hai, wo flourish karta hai. And especially in a country where you don't have education, where people can't think for themselves, why blame them? People who can think for themselves, do they really think for themselves? Do I blame common man when he gets into trouble? I remember there was an incident, I will not name the gentleman, very well-known professor from JNU. He once came and delivered a lecture at Punjab University. I happened to be presiding there. I mean, students, it was a student event. So they said, why don't you sit and preside? I said, fine. I mean, I would never say no to it, but I knew the politics of that man. So, and I knew that I'd get into trouble at some point. So in course of his lecture, you know, he gets up and says, you know, that's the time when Ram Mandir controversy was raging and things like that. Babri Masjid, Ram Mandir, so on and so forth. I'm talking of some 15 years ago. And he says, in course of his lecture, he says, in Delhi now we have found that beneath a masjid, there are debris of a temple. You know, I mean, 
fine. But from a public podium, you, you, you see the kind of mischief that is created there? The moment an intellectual says this, what is he doing? He's actually fueling the fire. He's sowing the seeds of discord. He's actually splitting people. Okay, fine. This controversy has not died down. I am creating another one. Is that the job of an intellectual? Or is the job of an intellectual what Arnold said? Sifting ideas and show them for what they are. Don't show them your ideology. Show them your convictions. Are we living in the times when men have convictions? I include women as well. We live by instincts, no convictions. That's the crisis. So the other thing is uh, regarding Sufism in Punjab. So, uh, I mean, if you, uh, if history is any witness, then there are two strands in Sufism. There is also the Sufism of uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi, who, uh, you know, was extremely angry about Akbar's liberal, uh, you know, policies, progressively liberal policies. And uh, he was also responsible for Jahangir, uh, you know, uh, giving an adverse review to uh, Guru Arjun Dev and so on and so forth. Gee. So, uh, I mean, uh, where does uh, Punjab stand when you have this kind of Sufi movement going on for a long time? And uh, history shows that the majority of Sufis are usually of the Asirhindi type, not of the Bulesha or Warishah type. Okay. So this is the first question. Then the second point is that uh, uh, when you say that politicians create riots or whatever, I, I seriously don't think politicians can pay everybody in a riot. So if we actually say that people have been misled, we are actually denying adults agency and responsibility. Because ultimately, the person who writes is the person who gets uh, arrested and charged, if at all. Okay. So can you please address these two points? Uh, sure. Uh, let me first take up your first question, uh, Mr. Ramakrishnan. You know, when I talk about Sufism in Punjab, um, uh, there is there are people who have written about it. Uh, there is a friend who is working at Ambedkar University. He's uh, done a book recently, and he's uh, actually visited different Sufi centers in Punjab. He's a historian by training, and uh, he's put together, documented all that material. Uh, I'm not really in a position to say as to why Sufism spread through Punjab. Uh, but um, I'm, uh, probably I won't be able to give a historian's response to that. Uh, I would m give more of a literature person's response to it. And that response is that, you know, because as it is, we were open to all kinds of influences. So anything moderate was acceptable to us, but anything hegemonic was not acceptable to us. So Sufism almost came into our lives imperceptibly and there at the level of people, people began to embrace it because they felt that there was no threat it offered. Whereas Islam in its hegemonic form did offer a potential threat and we know exactly how some of the gurus came into conflict with the establishment in Delhi and we know how Guru Arjun Dev Ji had to suffer because of that how Guru Tegh Bahadur Ji had to suffer, how 
Guru Gobind Singh Ji had to suffer on account of all that. We know the kind of run-in they had with the ruling establishment or the Mughals in Delhi and had to pay a heavy price for it. So the point I'm trying to make is that if Sufism found an easy access in Punjabi culture, society, it's only because of our inherent tendency to open up to everything that was non-hegemonic. But whatever was hegemonic, we always fought against it. We always resisted it. We always took pride in rejecting it because social dissent is a very, very strong thing. And interestingly, Sufism is actually based on the notion of social dissent because they also disagree very heavily with the clerics of Islam. So that idea of dissent appealed to Punjabi mindset as well, apart from the fact that we were open to all kinds of influences, apart from the fact that we were, as it is, open to all kinds of foreigners, invaders, and we were multicultural. We had all kinds of footprints uh, here. Now, um, you know, when we talk about agency, uh, it's, a, it's a heavily loaded term. Who has agency? A man in the street, does he actually have agency? I mean, let's ask ourselves some critical questions. We are educated people. We have this gift given to us that we can think for ourselves. How many of us do think for ourselves? How many of you, how many of us actually assert that sense of agency that we are talking about? You know, these are all speculative questions. So I would not really get like to get into it. Why is it that a person, despite the fact that he has agency, is not able to actually assert that agency? It's a very, very large question. There are a number of factors for it. We are led by self-interest. We are led by greed. We are led by petty interests. And in short, we like to be led. If anyone likes to be led by whatever, what kind of agency does he or she have? It's only by resisting influences that we can exercise a sense of agency. I'm South Indian and I've lived in Delhi now for about 10 years. I studied here before that and I've noticed this that there is a certain sort of erosion of that basic Vedic essence among Punjabi Hindus is what I've noticed. You know, how few of them wear sarees, for example, as a woman, I'm just saying, or even bindis. And apparently I'm told that once upon a time, Sikh women used to wear bindis. That was a part of them. But now how many do? You know, on a day-to-day level, when you notice these things, you see that there is a certain erosion. There is a huge uh, Devi cult, for sure. What you said is true. Ancient people. So that's why the Navratras are important and everything. And yet there is uh, no desire to go back to a cultural roots that were way before Sikhism, way before any of the Sufism and everything that you're speaking about. I had read an article a few years ago, which talked about how certain Vedic texts have also been composed in Punjab. And as surprising as it sounds to many of us who are used to looking at, you know, or thinking of Punjabi in a certain way, they have actually been composed there in perhaps what is now uh, in Pakistan. 
you know, where we had holy um, our rishis, our sages. So that is the past which I feel needs to sort of, um, you know, be invoked more. And why do you think that hasn't happened? What is the reason? Was it that it was too much syncretism that sort of wiped it out or the desire to just survive because of the whole Muslim onslaught, which was severe in Punjab? So what do you think, sir? What can be done to bring it back if you feel that it needs to be brought back? Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, Dipanjali ji, in a way, towards the end of your comment or question, you have answered uh, the question itself is the way I would like to put it. You know, because when you say that, um, is it not because of too many influences, too many cultures coming together in Punjab? Is that not the reason why Punjabis have lost this sense of culture? Uh, to some extent, in a limited way, one could say, yes, that is one of the reasons. When you have too much on your plate, you don't know what to pick up on. In a way, you can say that I like everything. In a way, you can say that I reject everything. In a way, you can say that I pick on everything a little and that's it. I'm happy with it. Now, one of the accusations, which um, in fact, it is the hint towards that is available in your question as well. One of the charges that is leveled against Punjabis is their superficial attitude towards culture. You know, that comes in when uh, we look at, let's say, a typical South Indian who practices his culture. Because the way in which Indian culture, the Vedic culture has been preserved in South India, it has not happened in Punjab. And let me also say it could not have possibly happened in Punjab. The way you have kept the uh, tradition of music alive, the way in which you have kept the tradition of Sanskrit lyrics alive, the dance forms are there. You know, everything in our context has changed. And let us also understand that apart from the fact that we are, in, we are, were, and will remain for a long time an agrarian society. One of the reasons why farmers are protesting on the borders of uh, Delhi is because we are worried about the reforms. We, we feel that these reforms are going to do more harm than good. That is precisely the reason why we are protesting. But anyway, leaving that aside, I think it's important to understand that there are two aspects to culture. One is what see, appears on the surface. And the other is the core element. Core element can only be preserved in those societies, the way it's been preserved in uh, down south or in the southern parts of India, because there is a certain amount of insularity. There were no invasions or there was no trouble. There was no political ferment. We constantly were in a state of political for upheaval. We were all the time, you know, into crisis management. And when you have to do too much of crisis management, I think you're only doing that and you're not into preservation. As I pointed out to you, we've not even been able to. I mean, there are, uh, there is a certain kind of sacred cartography available here. There are certain ancient monuments available here, but we have neglected them completely. We are not even trying to preserve them for the posterity. Why is it? Because we move, we believe we have to somehow move on and we have to do what people like to call hold up operation. Punjabis have been, I, I'm defending Punjabis, of course, being one, 
we have been doing this hold up operation all through history so please don't blame us for not being able to preserve and intermixing comes very easily to us that's why you will find a sikh let's say uh, successful in assam in calcutta in mumbai in um, in new york and even in vancouver or toronto you know because of this ability to open up to embrace to accept new cultures new ideas they move on with life but holding up operations or the crisis management it does take toll of the essence of culture we move away from it so then we try and uh, do what is called what you said about navratras i would say it's fetishization of culture you know we have fetishized it so that's it's more of a consumerist thing in our culture that we find navratra ho gaya durga puja ho gayi apne tarike se dance gana ho gaya because that's peculiar to our culture so puja ho gayi it's not so much of worship it is more of fetishization which is what happens in all societies and cultures where you cannot have in depth engagement with cultural thought so to say thank you what can be done to revive our sanskriti and uh, do add that i'm not blaming punjabi hindus but have always been sympathetic to their struggles historically but i will add on my remark to this when when she asked about uh, hindu punjabis not wearing uh, sarees and all in delhi there was also a time when an iqbal bano to protest to uh, make a point wore a saree in a stadium when when uh, the president had banned it in pakistan so so she says what can we do to revive our vedic or ancient sanskriti uh, uh well i think uh, my answer to that would be very simple that uh, if you want to revive vedic sanskriti in its pristine form it may not happen you know historically uh, if you look at the historical march we started with that vedic sanskriti we started with vedantic thought but that vedantic thought has undergone all kinds of transmutations in the process of history now in order to say that we should be able to revive vedantic thought or vedic sanskriti in its pristine form is to deny this entire progress or whatever has happened through history i think we can only look at this point at which we are located where the fact is that we are a culture of intermixing that there is fusion no clear cut identities and therefore celebration of this brand of sufism if you allow me to say that that's all that is possible but if you say sanskriti vedic sanskriti should be revived i don't think it's possible history never travels backwards it always moves in the forward direction we have one choice either go against the current we can do that punjabis have been doing it swimming against the current but in this case you can't bring past back into future or back into present because if you do that you will have no future we are seeing that already
When you bring too much of past into present, you have no future. 